This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Bishop Michael Nazar Ali and is from the third Sunday after Pentecost. It's wonderful uh, to be in a church that was a factory. Uh, well done. I mean, this is all about conversion, isn't it? Uh, unfortunately, in our world, we see the conversion the other way, which churches turning into factories. So, well done. Uh, for doing something for the gospel. And I pray that the space that God has given you will be filled uh, with His joy, with the presence of the Spirit, and indeed with people uh, God brings uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, when He comes back from the grave, according to both volumes, of St. Luke, the, his Gospel, and the Acts of the Apostles, first shows them how everything that has happened was how it was meant to be. So he takes them to the Older Testament and shows them how he was to suffer, to come back to life again, and what this meant for them in the days that were to come. He prepares them very carefully for the mission that is to come. And that's very important to be prepared in the scriptures, to be rooted in the scriptures if we are going to be faithful witnesses. And it is only then that they are sent out. Now, of course, the apostles are unique. They were eyewitnesses. They had heard everything that Jesus had said to them. They had touched him and felt him, as it says in the first letter of John. We also are witnesses. Of course, we can't be like the apostles, but we can testify to the apostles' testimony. So our task is to hear and to pass on the faith of the apostles. From person to person, from generation to another generation, and of course across cultures. And so we find that when the Spirit comes, the apostles who have been prepared already are faced with the world on their doorstep. You know, the theme of this coming week in the Provincial Assembly is mission on our doorstep, and this is what happened to the apostles. In the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we find that there are people from all over the world, from Iran in the east, the country we now call Iran in the east, to Rome in the west. Jews from everywhere in the world, those who had converted to Judaism, and people who were not formerly Jews, but who already recognized that the God of Israel had something to say to them, the so-called God-fearers, how important they were for the mission of the early church. Halfway houses are so important, aren't they? Uh, to prepare people to understand and eventually to accept the gospel. So they were all there, and the apostles knew that this was the time for worldwide evangelism. 
But then because so many of their own people responded to the good news, they were taken up with organizing the churches for them. All sorts of tensions arose and disputes broke out between different ethnic groups about how they were to be treated. And we find not too much about worldwide evangelism between chapters 2 and chapters uh, 8 and following. So what happened then? Where did the impetus for this worldwide mission of the church come from? Well, it came actually from martyrdom, from that very first giving up of his life by St. Stephen the proto-martyr for witnessing to Jesus Christ. Martyrdom has been the story of the church and in this century, some of my own ministry these days has shown me that there are more martyrs for the church and for the Christian faith today than there have ever been before in history. I mean that is the truth of the matter. More people are imprisoned or tortured or exiled or killed today for the faith than at any time before uh, in the history of the world. But it was Stephen's martyrdom that proved the impetus because it scattered the gathered church. It scattered them um, to different parts uh, of their own country and eventually abroad. And as they were scattered, of course, it is natural, isn't it? They shared the good news of Jesus Christ with people who were like themselves, who were fellow Jews. And of course it's easy, isn't it, if you speak the same language, if you share the same culture, to share that good news with people who are like you. But brothers and sisters, it did not stop there. That's the point that is being made in this whole book of the Acts of the Apostles. It didn't stop there because they then went, who did they go to? They went to people who were not unlike them actually, objectively considered, who were in many ways like them, had the same history, but people they disliked. You know how often that's the case, that people who are most like us are farthest away from us. Who did they go to? The Samaritans. See, they didn't want to have the Jewish people any social or religious contact with the Samaritans. But those who were scattered took the good news of Jesus Christ, how God had sent him to make us friends with him again, to fulfill all those ancient hopes that had got derailed in the story of the Samaritans. No wonder that the Samaritans responded to this good news. They saw at last the point of their story, which had gone so badly wrong. And then one of them, Philip, he didn't stop there. He went to that official, that minister of the Queen of Ethiopia. the one who had all the treasure 
What did you say uh, you called such a person the United States? Treasury Secretary, well, that's exactly who he was. I've been um, recently, in recent weeks, three times in Africa, and God must have a purpose about that. I'll find out in due course, no doubt, what that is. But you hear of all sorts of ways in which people claim the gospel came to Africa. We praise God for all those people who have brought and are bringing the gospel to that continent. But of course here we have in the Acts of the Apostles already God's way of bringing the gospel to that continent. In the Ethiopian minister and we praise God for the long story of the church in that land. And then what happened? The gospel comes to the very heart of the camp of the enemy the occupying force, the imperial army, it comes to Cornelius. Again, who has been prepared wonderfully by God before. You know, the God-fearers, those who were on the um, outer fringes of Judaism, were the people, I believe, who were the first often to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ because they knew enough of God's purposes and then they could spread the gospel uh, further afield with those who had no contact, previous contact with the God of Israel. So here we have an expanding circle of the good news from Jerusalem outwards as Jesus indeed had said and now we find these people come to Antioch in the reading we've just had. Antioch was at the time the third city of the empire, ranking after only Rome itself and Alexandria. It had um, in the ancient world a large population, about half a million people, that's big for an ancient city. And it had all the equipment that such a city should have, statues and pagan temples and gymnasia and all sorts of facilities. But when these early disciples arrive, they discover a hunger. The old paganism, the fires of it were dying out. People had stopped believing in the ancient gods. There was a longing for something more, for something greater that desire for God planted in every human heart. It is that which makes them respond to the preaching of the gospel as ever, as ever, and everywhere. So we read that when they take this word, not only to the Jews, but to the other people of Antioch, what happens? The hand of the Lord is with them and a great number turn to the Lord. When the apostles who had stayed, of course, in Jerusalem hear about this, they send Barnabas to them. 
Why Barnabas? You know what the name means, of course. The apostles called him son of encouragement. That is why he is sent to be an encourager for what is going on. And of course, this reminds us of the task of overseers to be encouragers in uh, people using the gifts that God has given them. You see, not to prevent the use of such gifts, but to direct, to discern, to direct. Uh, and to encourage the use of such gifts. This is what Barnabas did, the son of encouragement. I remember immediately after the Islamic revolution in Iran, I and two other bishops went in in a clandestine way to consecrate the new bishop in Iran. And the consecration, I remember, I will never forget, was on the feast of St. Barnabas, the 11th of June. And I hope that we too were encouragers of that beleaguered and persecuted church at that time. Well, of course, that is why we'd gone. And God arranged a strange protection for us because we were entirely on our, on our own, or so we thought. Uh, he arranged uh, for the papal nuncio in Tehran to protect us, Anglican bishops, uh, whilst we were there for the consecration of this new bishop. What is the result of Barnabas coming to this church? It is an increase in evangelism. You see, so the arrival of oversight did not dampen down the fervor for bringing people to Christ, but increased it. And how we bishops need to remember this, that our task is not to quieten things down. It's not to make people a part of a system, but to encourage the sharing of this good news uh, ourselves, of course, to do it, but also to encourage our people to do it. So it says, when he, uh, when he arrived, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, and a large company was added to the Lord. See, would that the arrival of a bishop in this or that part would have this result, the adding of a large company to the faithful. So at Antioch, we find effective oversight leading to effective evangelism. But that is not the end of the story, of course. Because Barnabas realized that evangelism is not enough. Just bringing people to the feet of Christ, uh, good and desirable as it is, is not enough. So what did he do? He'd known a man called Saul, who had been wonderfully converted, and Barnabas, in fact, had been responsible for bringing Saul to the attention of the apostles. So he goes and finds him and brings him 
to Antioch. Why? So that they could teach those who had come to faith. You see, evangelism has to be followed by a grounding in the faith. Thorough teaching in God's word and in God's purposes for us for people to work out the implications of the gospel for them in every aspect of their life. Who they are as persons, how to treat others as made in God's image at every stage of their lives, what is the importance of family in God's purposes for the bringing up of children and the mutual regard that husband and wife should have one for another? How we are to relate uh, to those who are set over us in authority in the state? When we are to obey them and when with all due respect we are to say no, if they ask of us something that is contrary to God's word? What we are to do for social justice? All the, the whole implications, all the implications of the gospel had to be worked out, have to be worked out. And this is what was happening at Antioch and this of course is what should happen in every fellowship, in every church, in every part of the church, uh, in every generation. One of the implications of the gospel that we hear about is a consciousness of the people in Antioch of a responsibility to the wider church. The theme um, next week is mission on our doorstep. But there are so many people who are coming uh, this coming week, well this present week I should say, from all over the world because they sense a responsibility for you. That's why they're coming. And the question is, what responsibility have you for them? You see, the church in Antioch realized as a result of prophecy that they had a responsibility for the poorer Christians in Judea. They had received the faith from them and now in their need of the church in Judea, in the famine that is to come, they had a responsibility of helping them with material assistance. You see, an implication of the gospel that is set out for us. Evangelism and teaching, social responsibility, a concern uh, for our Christian brothers and sisters. All of this we find in the church in Antioch. And then a little bit later on in chapter 13 we find that the church in Antioch is a praying church, you see. It does not engage in mission of any kind without prayer. See, sometimes uh, we put the cart before the horse, don't we? Well, that's disastrous. Nothing will ever happen if you do that. 
prayer, these people were praying so that God would lead them exactly in what he wanted them to do. Serious prayer together as a church, for Christian leaders to pray together. I sometimes wish that synods of the church were more about prayer than about debate. Well, not sometimes, I always wish it, especially when I'm sitting through them. A praying church and a fasting church, you see. They were preparing seriously for what was to come. Uh, today, uh, our Muslim friends celebrate Eid al-Fitr, which is the end of their month of fasting. And sometimes when I look at them in that month of Ramadan fasting, I say, well, what are Christians doing? When and how do we fast? For what purposes? There's a lot about fasting in the Bible. And of course, in many parts of the world, fasting is uh, a, an ordinary, normal experience of the Christian life. But in the West, so often it has become marginal to Christian praying, to Christian living. And we need to recover a sense of prayer with fasting when we consider what God is wanting us to do next. As a church and also as believers. So after fasting and prayer, they discover that God wants some people set aside for mission that was beyond the limits of Antioch. And so they send off uh, Saul, who's later called Paul and Barnabas, and his companion, their companion John Mark, out on that very first missionary journey. There have been thousands of missionary journeys since then. I've taken part in some. I'm sure you have experienced uh, yourselves of such journeys. But this is the very first one. And there are two others recorded in the Acts of the Apostles where the gospel is taken to people well beyond the limits of Judaism. And the missionaries who are sent, distinguished as they are, don't pretend to do it on their own. They keep coming back to report. You see, all three missionary journeys either begin at Antioch or be both begin and end at Antioch. Paul is very keen to report the successes and the failures and the problems that he has had and his companions to the sending church. Accountability is so important in mission and ministry. We are not independent lone actors. We belong to the body and need always to give an account of what we are about to the body and of course to its head, Jesus Christ himself. But then the church at Antioch does not pretend that it has all the answers. It does not claim autonomy for itself. 
it could have done, I suppose. It could have said, well, here we are. We are a pioneer church at the cutting edge of mission. What need have we of anyone else? But they don't do that. When the question arises of what to do with the Gentiles who are coming to faith, are they to become Jews first before they become Christians? That was the big question. The Church of Antioch refers the matter to the apostolic band in Jerusalem. And so we have the very first council of the church. In the provincial assembly we will be having a council of your church. We praise God that is possible for a faithful church to meet in that way. But this is the very first council to decide whether Gentiles need to become Jews first before they become Christians. We all know the answer to which the council came and it was fateful for the rest of the history of the church. But it is because the church at Antioch felt it needed wiser counsel, wider counsel than they uh, could provide themselves. In 1998, uh, when the question of human sexuality uh, was uh, becoming very urgent in the Anglican Communion, in a similar way, all the bishops gathered together at the Lambeth Conference decided by an overwhelming number to set out once again the teaching of the Bible and the unvarying teaching of the Catholic Church on this matter. Of course, there were some who rejected this. But in doing so, they were rejecting both teaching of the Bible and the teaching of the living authority of those who had been given a commission by God uh, to bring this teaching, to set this teaching out in the presence of the rest of the church. But Antioch, you see, did not make false claims to authority. In later years, Antioch was to become one of the principal sees, seats of a bishop uh, in the church after Rome and Constantinople and Alexandria and Jerusalem. Just as it had been the third city in the empire, it now became one of the five uh, principal sees in the Christian church. But the reason that all five were given um, a hearing and reverence in the church was because it was felt that they remained faithful to the teaching of the apostles. Not because of anything inherent in them or their history or their location or their population. And so also today, any respect that we have, any obedience that we owe, to anyone, however historic the sea or however new, it will be because people are faithful to the Word of God and to the unvarying teaching of His Church. That is the reason uh, for respect, for reverence. Antioch uh, became famous uh, for its fidelity 
to the plain meaning of the Bible. You see, there were other people at that time in Alexandria, for instance. Alexandria was the center of an important um, uh, uh, academic, um, um, well, I suppose a university in today's uh, terms. And so the people of Alexandria, the church in Alexandria felt it had to relate um, the faith of the apostles to this world of philosophy. And we, we will say the Nicene Creed soon, and of course much of the Nicene Creed is couched in the language of those days, of that philosophy. And it was a necessary task for Alexandria to do that. But Antioch concentrated on the text of the Bible, on its exposition and its exegesis, on bringing about the plain meaning of the Bible for believers. It emphasized the history of God's mighty works amongst his people in the prophets and in the coming of Jesus Christ, in his work, his death and his resurrection. We are celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation this year. I will have the privilege of preaching at Wittenberg on the very day, I think it is, that Martin Luther is supposed to have nailed those theses to the door of the cathedral. Don't know, has anyone nailed anything to the door of your cathedral? <laughs> well, here is, an, um, here is an incitement for you to do so. But you see, the Reformation is also rooted in this instinct found in the church in Antioch. The plain meaning of the Bible for plain, ordinary Christian living. Why history is important in understanding God's work amongst his people, not just because it's in the past, but, but because it is a clue to the present and to the future. Antioch shows us how to be effective in evangelism. Antioch shows us how we are to be a learning community. I'm sure you are a learning community here, uh, learning the ways of God in the Bible and in the unvarying teaching of the church. Antioch shows us how to prepare with fasting and with prayer for the mission God has for us, whether on our doorsteps or very far away. Antioch shows us how to submit to authority, duly constituted authority, when it is necessary to do so. And most of all, Antioch shows us how to take the Bible seriously. I'm so glad that this week we will be with churches from all over the United States and Canada, uh, from the Episcopal tradition, from the Anglican tradition, who are committed to taking the Bible seriously. I am glad because some years ago I felt that the whole thing was in jeopardy that there would not remain an Anglican tradition on this great continent that took the word of God seriously. So the fact that you are here and I am here 
is a sign of God's mighty working in this place. Praise God for that indeed. And we pray that what God has done amongst you, He will also do elsewhere. There are other needy places in the Anglican world today. And what you have gone through, others are going through now or are about to go through in the days and years to come. So pray, pray for them and work with them so that God's word will be supreme, will remain supreme in our communion. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.